Welcome, everybody, to the J3 Amateur Hour podcast. We are back. I am your host, Jordan, and I'm here with... Yoel. And not Josh. Josh could not make it tonight. Where is he, Yoel? Okay, Josh is at a Bulls game. Okay, Yoel, so it's been a while. We're back in the studio. It's been a while. The world has changed uh, since we know it. Uh, since I was last year, it was summer. I was out golfing. Now it's basically the winter. Still out golfing. But um, the world has changed since October 7th. Absolutely. And uh, I'm actually coming off last week. I was privileged to go to the rally in D.C. Oh, how was that? I would say... Did I, you... Right when they announced it, I, I remember they announced it, let's say, two weeks before. Did you say, like, oh, I'm for sure going to this rally? Or you're like, oh, okay, whatever, they're having a rally. I don't think I knew what the magnitude of it was going to be when it first came out. But then when it started to gain traction and I maybe saw more emails and saw talk online about it, I just felt the need to go. Was it like because of people that you knew were going like, oh, I want to go with them? Or you're like, I'm going even if I go myself and all of a sudden others happen to go? Well, first of all, I knew that there was a group from Kins that was going. So I, I always knew I could jump in with them. When you um, say going, like, no, they had transportation already set up? Yeah, or? I think people started booking flights. I think actually maybe it was maybe Richard Silverman actually reached okay. out to me and asked me if I was going. So at that point, I knew that people were going, that I knew, and that I could travel with. And then I thought... But when you say going, are you referring to, like, I mean, you don't need a ticket to the rally. You need transportation People there. were flying, y'all. So people had bought you, flights. When you said, I'm going, that means you had a ticket. Is that right. correct? Okay. That's right. So then I, I knew, okay, I'm going to book. And I also thought, you know, I, I wanted to kind of rally some troops up to go with me. I was successful at that. And we had a nice group that went... What time did you leave? What this time is, is your flight? I need to bad. know how this whole thing I'm works. Not first, the decision to go. Let's talk about the decision. You know, I think we're all kind of in the same situation here in America, watching the news unfold every day. Obviously, you know, people in Israel, people closer to the tragedy, um, we're all one people, but people that were very personally affected by it, obviously have it, the heart, you know, it's unimaginable. We can't even begin to describe that. But here in America, the experience is, is, is different in that we're kind of like, suffering silently, you know? I mean, people in America and people across the world feel most safe as a Jew in Israel. I mean, it's it's clearly less safe, you know, out here in the States. Clearly, I'd say it's, you know, not including in terms of, you know, areas of, you know, where the war is, but let's say, you know, someone, you know, I have a lot of family in, in Israel, and it's not like, you know, they don't face anti-Semitism or they don't face these other issues or, you know, open, you know, marches of Nazis and stuff right, like that. So right, they don't right. really have that there. But like here the, in America, so like, you know, it's a different type of suffering. It's more of a mental. I mean, obviously, if you sort of, you know, shut off the news or shut off your social media, you have no idea and you right. might not be affected day to day. But, you know, if you, you know, if this is what, you know, occupies your brain throughout the day, then, yeah, you feel this anti-Semitism yeah. out here in the States. And, and I think it's I think there, you know, there's a, a strong sense of unity and there's, you know, the, the whole country is rallying around, you know, and. And in America, it's almost like we're following it 24-7 and thinking about it 24-7, but you don't know if other people are or aren't, how people are feeling on a daily basis. I, I mean, I know that I, I, I wake up every morning and immediately I jump on Twitter because it's in Israel, you know, eight hours later, it's the middle of the day. So I'm straight to Manny Fab, Fabian's feed. Is that your, um, yeah, that's that my your go to times. I, I never figured out, I, I never figured yeah, out Twitter. He's, he's very, very good. Immediately looking for the news, what's going on, what's going on in Israel. And it's just, it's consuming and it's every single day. Sometimes, you know, it didn't seem like anything was happening. And then some days a lot happens. And then also you're 
also seeing throughout America. You're, you know, you're seeing scenes, whether it was in Chicago and Skokie, what happened, or all across, you know, very angering, triggering things happening all over the country. And there's, there's a real palpable sense of... So you, sense you of, see all this going on, and then you're like, you know what? I see there's this rally that's going going on in Washington, yes. and I'm going to join. Now, what made you think that this rally wasn't going to be, you know... 2,500 people or 5,000 people or, you know, what made you, or, or did you not realize, you know, how large it was going to be? I, I don't know what it was. I can't recall that I realized it was going to be big, but at the same time, I thought that the message of the rally, which was to, you know, at, at the time, a couple of weeks ago, there was, a, you know, there still is lots of calls for ceasefires, lots of calls for not supporting Israel. And you see that the politicians are very much affected by this. So I thought number one, what we could do in America is, is to rally support among politicians for remaining steadfast in their support of Israel. That's hard stop number one, which I think is very vital. And have you called any of your representatives? I did send some email. Okay. They gave some form to do, and I did that. And but then I got responses, and I, you know, obviously didn't want to read them. When too you much. get to Hillams to say, do you say those to Hillams and like WhatsApp groups? Um, sometimes. Okay. I do. I do. I think we're saying to Hillam every day, minion after minion, oh, sure, whatever it was, right. and then. And then the number two was, I think that there's a real need for people here to be among Jewish people, be among them, stand, Just feel standing, that camaraderie. standing strong as a united front, um, standing up against, against hatred, standing straight in support of Israel. Until I got there, I did not realize what it was going to be at all. We left early. I, I was on a 9 a.m. flight to Reagan. I flew with about 10 other guys. So we got up early. We got to the flight. And then it was- Did you drink at all? I did not drink at all. To calm your nerves for flying? No, I, I did not. Okay. Um, now, did you have a, plan, a transportation plan okay, upon so arrival? I, I, will, I, will say, I will say that I was very anxious because usually I have everything mapped out. Sure. And I kind of thought it's a group because of guys. Because there's going to be individual. That's, there's going to be that like one person who is like, guys, okay, this stop to that stop. It, I, it dawned on me that that was me. So, so I had to You were not out. traveling with a Rummy Weinfeld. No, I don't know what that okay. means. No, even. He just, he's like, the he's type that, okay, like, take no. care of things. No. So I, okay, it wasn't a big deal. You take the metro from Reagan to Smithsonian stop. That's what I was told. I was also following in the Kins WhatsApp group, getting information from there. Once we were on the train, we realized like a lot of people here are all headed to the same place, right? On the train itself, it was actually a nice moment. Guys were singing and, you know, all the people around us were taking videos. It was probably about a 10, 15 minute train ride. Okay. Until we got to the I'm, Smithsonian. I'm a little stuck on something. Yeah. <clears throat> so okay. you're traveling with a group of people, and you didn't really have a plan. Did they not come with a plan? They're like... What do you mean what, what do you mean? no plan? No, like transportation. You're like, like... Well, no, okay, we had to take the train. We're not jumping right. in Ubers, and we all knew that when we got to D.C., there's hundreds like, of thousands of people that sure. are flooding D.C. It, you don't want to get into a car. But I'm saying, were they like, Jordan, what's the plan? Or everyone in their mind was, oh, we're going to go take the train. No, no one was too worried about it. Okay. It was fine. We we had an hour. To, figured it out. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Everyone's following me. Adults, you know, whatever. Have we, a credit card. And, and also, yeah. everyone. Also, keep in mind, we were ten guys, but there were probably another twenty on sure. our flight I from flight. Chicago that were headed to the same place. As well as when we landed, there's other flights coming in. Everyone's going to the same place. So were everyone's wearing, going to the metro. Did you wear a yarmulke on the plane? I did under my hat. I wore were, a hat. Were, I thought, you, were you hiding your Jewish identity I, in the airport? <laughs> that's fair. I was not. I just wear a hat when I travel. I always and, do. And also, um, it was sunny in okay. Washington, D.C. Sure. that day. So why the yarmulke then? Because I was coming from Shoal oh, okay. to the airport. Gotcha. Yeah. And also, nice I was place. driving a rabbi that okay. sat shotgun in my car on what, the way to the airport. What did you listen to on the way to the airport? 
Oh, so then I, I did think about that. Like, I wanted to make sure he was comfortable. So did I did. you make sure, like, you like change your station before they got in the car and all yeah, that? Yeah, no, I go Spotify on Bluetooth. So okay. it was, you know, whatever Jewish playlist I have. He enjoyed it. Okay, so we get out of the Smithsonian stop, and there's this large escalator because you're coming from underground, and you're going up. And then right when you kind of hit the outdoors, you look around, and it's, you know, you're at the mall. I don't know if you've been to D.C., I have. Do you know I, the mall? I, it's like between the Washington Monument and the um, Capitol. I was kicked off my eighth grade trip. <laughs> oh, yeah. so I didn't have a chance I think to we go. heard about that on yes. the John Rich episode. Did we? I think so. I okay, so anyways, we get to the mall, and it's... First of all, we were also thinking, this is interesting, uh, that I, I'm thinking about now, is that there were all these crazy rules about what you could and couldn't bring to the rally, right? So I was nervous even the day before. They heard, there was a list. There was a limitation on the size of your backpack, so it was something like 18 by 7 inches, the backpack. Oh, really? And I thought, I have no idea how many inches my backpack is. I thought about measuring it. You couldn't bring, you know, your flag had to be a certain size. You couldn't bring certain types of... You could literally walk in with anything they at this care. place. There, there, was was no, yeah. there was no gate. Was outdoors, there, was no one, yeah. there was no one coming through checking. There was no place. To, you know, we were looking for how to get in when we got there. And then we realized, like, we're, we're just in. That, that's right. it. There's yeah. nothing to do here. Let's just walk. It was an enormous crowd of people. I mean, it went on forever. We basically walked forward towards the Capitol, I guess, towards the direction, the stage. And we got there. Was it crowded to the point that you couldn't walk at full, like at, like a full pace, like you were weaving through people? At a certain point, yes. Okay. So, uh, but it wasn't like crowded, like walking out of like, a, let's say like the end of like a basketball game where Evan's like leaving at the same no, time. No, it was like that the entire time. Really? Okay. Yeah. A little bit. Right by the train station was pretty open. Wrigley, and not, then as not you, Comiskey. Right. Wrigley. And then as you got towards where the crowd was, and people were lined up to, you know, to watch, to be there, there were just hundreds of thousands of people. It was an and enormous And how far crowd. was the stage from, from okay. when you... So that's interesting because we went for, you know, we walked for maybe a couple blocks, I would say, equated to. And then we got to the point where, okay, we need to post up somewhere and we can't go any further. So somehow we found, I was with Ephraim Prero, and he found his parents. I have no idea. The second you got off the train, there was no reception. There was no texting, emailing, nothing. No calling. What does that mean? I mean there was no reception. Because there were so many people, so the cell carriers, I guess, cannot handle that level okay. of activity. So, like, your phone did not work, basically. Gotcha. Okay, I don't know how we found his parents, but we saw Rabbi Alicia, Miriam, Prero. So we went over to their direction, went more into the crowd to kind of find an area on the grass that we could all stand. We could not, all 10 of us, get in. It took a while for all of us to kind of be together. You know, like five of us went and then five stayed back. And then they eventually joined us when things opened up a little bit. But at no point did I have any idea where the stage was. That's how many people really? were there. I and it was going see, on throughout the entire time? Yeah, so there was a big screen in front of us that had some difficulties at a couple moments where like the audio went out. And this, it was so massive that when the audio went out, we literally couldn't, it's not like you could hear the echo of another screen or another group, right. you know, another audio ahead of, you, we couldn't hear anything. That uh -huh. was it. It was like nothing. Uh -huh. You know, that's how massive it was. I never saw the stage. And it's, and you know, you turn around to see behind Is this the area. I mean, look, like I said, I was, you know, have, I mean, I've been to, I've been to Washington before, you know, my kid was in yeshiva in, in Baltimore for a little bit. But um, been to the White House, I think. But like in terms of, is this the area like in Forrest Gump, you know, where the water is when like yes. Forrest is Jenny? Yes. Like, is that the Washington Monument? What, yes. What's the, uh, is that? 
And what's the, that area? That's the mall? That's Yeah, but it, we were much farther away something from the Washington Monument. Like reflection Pond? Or yeah, something. is that what right, But we weren't over there. We were closer, uh, more towards the capital. But, but that is the yes. area where it was supposed idea, to be. Yes, okay. what you're imagining is where we were. So when the speeches started, so we're watching on this, basically a big screen. I turn around and look behind me to see, okay, like where does this crowd stop? And I, I also cannot see the end of the crowd. And I jumped actually to try to see farther. It went on forever. I have uh-huh. no idea where it ended. Was it, were just, it, it was a mass of people. It was was inc- the atmosphere festive? Was it serious? No, no I would say. Was it, it, okay, so it was serious. I mean, you know. I mean, it, obviously everyone is there for a serious reason. Yes. You know? No, but, but it, 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 it was serious. When you people, see all these, like. People were, people were fired up in the sense that when the speakers got up there and they said, and, and they all, for the most part, spoke very well. Van Jones, for example, gets up there and like, you sure. don't know what to expect, right? He's uh, maybe a left-leaning um, commentator in politics, CNN mostly. And he got up there very, you know, and, and st- spoke very strongly against anti-Semitism in America and what he's seeing and stuff like that. And, and you know, he, he's getting strong reactions, you know, in favor. And, and, you know, when he talks about freeing the hostages and, you know, people are chanting and what you realize is getting there, everyone is so filled with emotion, right? right? And looking for an outlet, looking for an outlet to express yourself and expressing ourselves among hundreds of thousands, you didn't feel alone. You felt together. This is our people. Right, so sometimes when you have that relief, I mean, I've seen when, you know, people are are in mourning and there's like a break in the morning and there's like a reason to laugh. They almost like, start laughing in tears. Like there's just like, there's a breakdown of emotion where like, you're just like relieved that like, okay, you got, you're carrying the same pain as me. And like, yes. because you're yeah. here with me, like I feel much better right. almost to the point where like, I have a smile on my face, in, in even that, though there's nothing to smile about. In that sense, it was joyous. It was right. joyous to be together as one. It was a mix of emotions. I mean, you know, certain speakers got up there. There was a segment where there were different speakers, the women that had come from or their families had come from oppression so there was uh in a persian jew that spoke but then this michal Bitone spoke from argentina and it was incredibly emotional you know i'm wearing sunglasses but i mean you couldn't hold back tears when she was speaking i found it to be incredibly powerful and moving and then when the the families of the hostages spoke first of all what was interesting is that you know you could between pauses right you're in a crowd of you know sure. 300,000 people right. you could literally hear a pin drop I, I remember noticing that then between words, it was like a ghost town. It's wild. It was so intense and serious. And I mean, you know, obviously as a Chicago and when Rachel right. uh, Goldberg spoke, I mean, y- y- words can't describe, right. you know what I mean? That feeling. And then, and then, you know, when you go from that to saying to Hillam and, and when, uh, I don't know, the Maccabees shout out to my old for Are they roommate. still thinking the Maccabees? I like, guess so. It feels like my, it was like, like my, 15 years my ago. My roommate, Noe, uh, and Harusa for a time When did they come Israel. out? Like 12 years ago? We were in college together when he joined. It was and a how old are you? Remind um, us once this again. This was like 2009, 2010 maybe. So yeah, 2008. When he spoke and they, they sang Achenu. And, you know, you have a mix of a crowd. I would, It was tr- a tremendous amount of, you know... Were you mostly Orthodox or you couldn't tell? I, I, I would say probably 50%, okay. honestly. It was noticeable that, you know, like... Our group of ten guys put our arms around each other's shoulders, and we're singing the words. It was like paparazzi around us. I mean, you had groups of there of you know secular women who maybe not be familiar with the song. I mean, turning around, ten women videotaping us, taking pictures of us, so excited to see 
us singing like that. I, I thought did that you ask them to tag that you? effect on other people to also. To tag the show? Did you ask them to tag the show? I did not, y'all. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, and I thought that effect like reverberated. I, you know, at some point um, later on in the day when people had, had left a little bit, some of the buses were scheduled to leave probably, so it cleared out a little bit in our section, so we found the time to Dava Mincha. Like paparazzi. I mean, people were taking video, and, what and the pride, and the pride for them was it, w- it was an amazing feeling to be there together, having that effect. Everyone kind of what percentage we say was Jewish? I mean, forget Orthodox. Most of the people right, that okay. I noticed, I don't know. There, you know, I gave a pound to some like farmer looking guy that was yeah. there. I guess there's no real way. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I have no idea. Judging people whether I have Jewish no idea, but it was, and you know what was in well, um, what resonated actually was interesting was. Moshe Blonder can attest to this, that he and I were standing next to each other, and there was a girl behind us who came with her father. She was uh, special needs. I you know, was talking to her father. They had taken a bus from Toronto, and they were with a group from Toronto who had, I don't know how many hours that is. And she was, I mean, you could tell. It was, it was just pure her, her soul, like unfettered. She was just yelling randomly, you know, free Israel. Free the hostages, free, you know, like just, just stand strong, you know, just out of nowhere all the time. And it was, it was just pure and it, it re, like, it just resonated. I, I don't know how to explain it. You know, it, it felt like I felt that need to also yell and say, you know, do whatever, did chance, you a, you but you don't, you kind of think about like the people around you. How's that going to be? Is it the did right moment? Is that this? I did. I, I was draped in an uh, in Israeli flag. Yes. Were there people selling flags there? There was not actually actually the people I were with like like Prero um, had had like a thousand Israel stickers and he was just handing them out to everybody. It, it, there was this camaraderie among sure. everybody was there together in it. He was had, people were appreciative to be given stickers. Did you see a lot people of friends giving out flags Did and you everything? See, like people you knew from other cities and stuff like that. I mean the crowd was so massive, but it happens to be like I turn around and. I don't know, maybe uh, 30 feet behind me was uh, a buddy front that I hadn't right. seen in but you really, 12 years but from college. But you couldn't text people like who was here. No, you could not. You could not. There was no way to text anybody. And so what time did you get to the rally? Like We got there probably like 12.45. Okay. And, and, the, and what time started at 1. Okay. And, but it was already starting. It was like... It was it was starting ready started by twelve forty five. I, I guess there was there was some type of pre show okay. like there was some there were there I guess there were performances by Yishe Rebo and some speeches that we missed, and then it happens to be at towards the end there was um, it got more into the anti semitism on college aspect yeah. and people were leaving. You I mean there were still a billion people there, but people were leaving because their buses were departing sure. whatever. I didn't have the schedule. I couldn't like you couldn't like I couldn't Google it or whatever. So I had no idea what was flying, what the schedule was. So at some point we're like, we need to get out of here. What time was um, your flight back? Nine PM okay. out of Baltimore. BWI? Yes. Okay. So at some point we're like, okay, I guess this is wrapping up. We apparently missed um Yishe Rebo and Omar Adam came back and performed and a whole thing. And we missed that. We were there when Matis Yahoo came out, which was a nice surprise. But we were there for for hours, you know, on our feet. And it was incredibly powerful, incredibly moving. And I'm happy I was there. And then afterwards, it was a matter of we had to get to Baltimore. But we did set that up nicely. Talk about planning. Morty Siegel had ordered David Chu's, was a very highly recommended Chinese place in Baltimore. So we had it delivered to a hotel that a couple guys were staying at overnight. How would you rate the, uh, the food? 
it was it was very good. I mean, I hadn't eaten for like eight hours, so I was happy to be eating. I do have a theory on Chinese it, it, food. Yeah, it, it was out for an hour and a half probably because it took us over two hours to get to Baltimore. So it wasn't as good as it may have been, but I'm sure at the restaurant it was. it's probably much better. Would you like to hear my theory on Chinese food? Yes. It's all the same. It just depends how hungry you are. So you were very hungry, so it was excellent food. It's hard to argue. Thank you. Okay. So anyways, and, and then we jumped on a 9 p.m. Fl- we, we went to BWI afterwards. The flight was probably 90% um, Jewish. From, where'd you Going say, back to Chicago. Southwest. Where, southwest. I know. So where'd you, what was your... Oh, yeah. I messed up. What was your up. boarding? Yeah, it was like B57. B57. Oh, my gosh. How many people got you know on what? I, A and B like, and claimed they were I like got, A-list? I got an aisle seat, though. Front, back? Towards the back, but I'm fine with that. Was the middle seat open and you took the aisle or you you were the first one in that um, section and then you took the I aisle. was no, someone was in the window. I took the aisle. Uh Ida Crown Girl was actually sitting in the window. I took the aisle and then Did you mention you're like, I'm sort of a big deal? I'm from no, J3 well, well, Amateur well, Podcast. No, I did not, but okay. Seth Seth's daughter was sitting sure. right behind me. Okay. And then Nisano Siegel. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar. He took the middle seat next to me. Gotcha. Okay. So it was fine. Yeah, it was great. Where were your friends sitting? I don't know. It was such a long day. I, you know, I'm not sure where they were sitting. They had free TV on the floor. Rabbi Schachter was from Makor and from the yeshiva was directly across from me. He was uh, learning Dafyomi. Very nice. And yes. did you join him? or? I did not. I was a little wiped from the day. Yep. Did you sleep on the plane at least? No. Okay. Anyways, that was a, a long-winded way of talking about that day. But, I, you know, listen, I, anyone that hasn't that hasn't watched, um, I, I mean, I've gone back and watched, you know, all the speeches and stuff from that rally. I thought it was very powerful. It felt important to be a part of it. And I'm happy that I went and it's something that, you know, I hope one day I'll, you know, show it to my kids and whatnot. On that note, we are bringing on as a guest tonight, the main feature of our episode is a special guest. Happens to be my brother-in-law. And he is the esteemed and well-known Nachum Myers. Nachum, thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for having me. Honestly, it's a privilege and honor to be here. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Well, let's get into it. Would this. you say you're a fan of the show? Big fan. Big Huge. fan. Huge. Okay, well, we bring on Nachum because Nachum, in a former life, was, and I don't know how many people know this, probably a lot. Is anyone ever surprised? Nachum served in the IDF in what years? 2013, March of 2013. I was in the Merch race, so March 2013 draft, and until middle of uh, 2014. So uh, only a little bit over a year. Uh, 14 and a half months okay. is the Machal tract, and similarly the Hesder tract of the time in the Army. Okay, well, that, now so is... So for people that know, I mean, Nachum grew up in Chicago... Nahum, you grew up in Chicago, right? You attended the Fastman Yeshiva High School. Correct. And then you go off to Israel to Yeshiva Nitiv Arye, if, I, if I'm correct. Correct. Okay. At what point did you decide, I'm going to go to the Israeli army? It's difficult to pinpoint exactly. Growing up, after my, uh, the first time I went to Israel was for my bar mitzvah. And after that, I went a couple of times for winter break. Um, pretty much most winter breaks until... Is it because of family? You had, you had a lot of family there? Or? A lot of family. Or just um, you enjoy taking luxurious vacations? 
luxurious might be a stretch. Okay. Uh, we did stay at a family friend spare bedroom in Rechavia. Sounds um, nice. is a nice, nice neighborhood. Yeah, I think I think expensive. one time we went down to a it's lot. Near, it's near Josh. <laughs> yeah, very close. Yeah. Um, I just remember being, you know, struck by everyone there serving, you know, wearing their uniforms. I actually thought that the uh, Border Patrol uh, Magav uniforms were much cooler than the Army uniforms or the little grayer ones. Once you get into like the deep part of the Army society, and not it's, the, it's the, very frowned not upon. Not the motorcycle guys? You know, they're, they're go up and down like, like Yafo, called? I don't know, like Mishmar Gavul or whatever. No, like, uh, that's Yamas. Uh, I don't know. They go up, like up and down like Ben Yehuda. Those are the Robocops. Super cops or something. Super cops. Yeah. They're mainly Russian, Ukrainians. Right. Like no yeah. families, no parents. Okay. And, so it was basically just the environment that you used to see inspired you. So like that started it. And then in Shana Aleph, there's the Poland trip. And I just remember that I think it was the Shabbos in... Krakow. Krakow, yeah. Somehow in a Tivarie, I was made or appointed to be the Gabai. And so as the yeshiva that sent like the most students on the trip, I got to be the Gabai in Poland for Shabbos, which was pretty, you know, cool. And, you know, it gets you just thinking in a different mindset of, of just everything that you're experiencing, things you've seen. You go to Auschwitz, you go to Birkenau and, and, I don't remember the name of the forest where all the kids, you know, were were killed. Bobby Barrett, Bobby. Is that what it's called? I think that's in Ukraine. But there's some there's some No Googling Jordan. <laughs> it's one of the locations you go to. And I just remember like sitting there being like, you know, I can't do anything about this in the past. I grew up in a pretty Holocaust importance household. Uh, my father's a Dosen. At the Holocaust Museum, so you felt like it was essentially this was a story. Calling. This was, this was essentially it. Like this was my contribution to never again. You can't do something about the past, but you could about the future. Exactly. And whether I live in America or Israel, you know, I'm just contributing to the overall fact that there is a military. This is something, you know, Midina Israel, and it's, you know, if I could do it, why not? So, so you go back for Pesach, and you bring that up to your parents at that stage i'd spoken about it my father was pretty anti the aspect of going to the army uh my mother because of safety just safety strictly okay. safety i mean you know the college and the importance of that you know does get thrown in there occasionally in december of my shana bet it was uh not really sure how i pulled it off but i was coming back for i guess forever coming back to america to america forever when in reality, I was just kind of just telling my parents I'm going to the army and I'm going back to Israel in two weeks and that's it. So I kind of got off the plane with like one bag instead of the three. And and there was no pushback or? Uh, okay. There was definite pushback for a couple of days, but we all got on the same page. Now, I understand that as, Nachum, you grew up as an only child. From what I understand, especially as a Chayal Bodeid, which is a lone soldier, one that doesn't have uh, immediate family in Israel, you need, did you need special sign off from your parents to join? So yeah, that was, <laughs> that was actually a, a fun one, but all the paperwork was signed. Um, surprisingly, uh, or not surprisingly, the Israeli consulate does not make that an easy deal, not due to trying to dissuade you from serving, but just for the, the logistical hoops that they put whoever needs to sign through. But got all that paperwork signed, went back to yeshiva, and uh, started planning to draft in the March draft. 
So it's very interesting. I, I went to Hakota, which was basically before Nativ, you know, it's Ravbina. But they were very much back in the day of not for Machal. It was like anti. Like, and know, ma- Machal, just to right. explain to the listeners. Machal is like a year and a half, like uh, army service or 15 months that uh, for overseas students. And then it's, it's considered to be like your full army service and instead of doing three years or five years Hesder, if you know, if you make Aliyah. So it's like considered like you did your national service. Yeah, for any of the listeners, I would definitely recommend for anyone that's on the fence of making Aliyah is to definitely start in the Machal tract, just in case you don't really love it or you don't want to follow through making Aliyah. You kind of reduce right. your service from three years to, you know. So so hold on, what, what was the reaction of Nativare as an institution? So as an institution, you have to have definite conversations with Rubina and the staff. You know, if your parents are vehemently opposed you know, no one really had that situation where, like, they were calling the yeshiva. But um, I do remember all of us getting sat down by Rav Bina in his office, and he just sizing every person up and kind of telling them. I do enjoy that. What did he yeah. say about you? How did he size you up? He's basically like... He doesn't do his voice. If you don't you're, I will yeah. not. He's like, you're an only child, you're adopted, and your parents are divorced. This is the best thing for you. Um, <laughs> He has a way with yeah, words. He just, <laughs> this, is, this is why I love him. And this was after, you know, I was the last one in the room. There were seven others that drafted through Nativ. Wow. Out of like 100 guys? 120 Shanalf down to okay. 100 Shanabat. Wow. Each person were given like three or four reasons why they're going to absolutely suffer. You know, uh-huh. one kid was from Switzerland. You're too clean. You're just like me. You won't be able to go to the bathroom in the middle of the forest. You know, another one, you know, your Hebrew accent is absolutely horrible. You're uh-huh. going to get made fun of. It was a jovial and semi-funny conversation. But at the same time, he was kind of sizing everyone up and saying, like, hey, this isn't going to be a walk in the park. And, you know, it's real. So you guys, seven of you made this decision, and then what happens? Does it start mid-year, like January, whatever? So January, after okay. I came back, you know, you got to start filling out paperwork. You got to go do doctor's appointments. A lot of doctor's appointments. You get your profile. Right. And the yeshiva really, you know, they assist you in facilitating that, because at that point, your most people's Hebrew is pretty, I wouldn't say non-existent, but somewhat weak. So there was someone in the yeshiva named Tova. She was the secretary who was your pretty much army correspondent. And she would tell you, hey, take this and this bus at this and this hour, and you have to be there, and you have to pass this test and try to speak as much Hebrew as you can. I was learning with Ripsi Wogelinton, who was my chavrusa for, I think, close to five years, and we we just... And my nephew. And Yes, and Yul's nephew. Uh, and I we signed did, his marriage certificate. And so... Maybe let, it, be, let it be known. <laughs> That's a story in, in and of itself. But continue, Nachum. And so, you, you know, you learn the halachos just of the army, as much as you can beforehand. And then there's a the swearing-in process, and then what? You report to a base? So you skipped about eight months. but Okay, the, so the that, first... that's after basic training. Exactly. All right, so okay. We're going to break so it down. Us... Months. Basic training is January, sign all the papers, do all of it, right? January, you sign all the papers, you get your profile. Doctor's appointments, we know. Doctor's appointments, all that stuff. So I got down, my profile was enough to be infantry. We all went together. Oh, wait, minus, hold on, hold yeah. on, back up, back up. Did you go into the Army... With a certain goal in mind, I know that you know within Israeli society, there's a certain level of um, esteem when it comes to different units and Golani, like Gilani Givati. I remember being in Mosheva and and there was some guy from Duv Devan or Sayer Makal, and that's you know the the higher levels of of elite units. Let's say, did you have aspirations to make it into one of those units or be a pilot, which is supposedly the hardest? 
Absolutely, you want to be doing something. At the end of the day, the goal is to see the most action you can see. And there's a unit called that I served in called Netzach Yehuda, and it's under the Kfir Brigade. And they um, specialized at that time in the Janin Tulkarim area. Also, because it's a religious unit, you didn't have to go to Ulpan. So it was kind of the best of both worlds. So no matter so how... So Ulpan was, was up there in yes. terms of your decisions. Oh, absolutely. There's a place they send all Americans or foreigners to called Michve Alon. And they kind of just send you there for an extra three months of the army. Okay, so at what point? So you started, let's say, January. So what point are you already reporting to these this brigade? So it was March. Okay, so March draft. And then you start training, basic training. Basic training. So we actually reported Erev Pesach. And they're like, okay, we're not dealing with the headache of making you guys kosher Pesach, you so know, bedat stuff for the next seven days. Or whatever. Come back on uh, in a week on Achron Shal Pesach, and uh, we all showed up. Now, were you with all your your seven American? You guys were all together already, separated at this point. So about five of us okay. ended up going now, together. Were there other guys from other Americans from yeshivas also there. I think there was about fourteen of us. Okay, um, so my other yeah. my other nephew. Okay, sure. Maybe Ethan. And uh, shout out to the Gibson. Shout out to the giraffe. You showed up that first day. You'd gotten your army gear, which you thought was the coolest thing you've, stuff you've ever seen in your life. You show up your first day. They tell you to be in Afula. I, I recall Afula. But basically, the basic training takes place in the Bika uh, for us. So that's in an area called Bikaot. And you're going into basic training, which is three months. So three months, you're there. So it takes you into the summer. And then now all of a sudden, like, wait, okay. wait, wait, no, 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 hold on, hold on. Just give us a basic gist. Now, come try describe for us what the life of a, a new soldier is in basic training. What does that consist of? What are they trying to train you for? Getting you into shape? Is it you know what time was wake up? Wake up was probably around four a.m. every morning. And did they, did they do a thing called kushi goofy? Or is that made up in Moshe I've never heard of that before. Okay, but no, uh, ta- okay, talk to us about what Jordan did you do? Training. One second. No, did you do Kushi no, Goofy? I don't know what you're talking oh, about. You're ridiculous. Basically, in Maybe basic and advanced email, training, the uh, the law in the army is you have to have six hours of sleep every single night. Okay. Um, that's the just bare minimum. But that's from 10 p.m. to going to sleep time to having to be standing in formation the next morning. So you know that cuts it down to let's say five hours and 50 minutes. And you're wiped, so you're going to sleep some nights at nine o'clock. No, I'm, I'm trying to get to. What are you wiped from? What are you? What wiped happens from? during the day? You get up. You do mifkad. Do you do mifkad? No. Uh, I mean, that's a, what like happens. 8 a. At I want to know what goes on please, at four a.m. I'm dying here. At, at four a.m., you're getting up. You're standing in formation, and you're just doing push-ups. You're just running around. To be honest with you, it was such an exhausting time period of my life that I can't really remember it. It's, it's kind of blocked out. I mean, did they teach you how to use a gun, perhaps? So, like, that's a couple weeks in. Okay. Um, at the end of the day, they're getting you in shape. I was in a special camp called uh, Machana Arayot, uh, which I called Machana Shamanet. It was essentially a fat, fat camp. camp. So who exactly. ran that? Tony Perkis? It, it was some dude. Like that that Do you, you know that reference? I don't even know it, but I, I find it funny. <laughs> you ever seen the movie Heavyweights? I did not. Okay. And so, basically, I think I lost 30 to 40 pounds in those Three to four months. Why didn't you just take the shot? Like, uh, what's that? Ozempic. Wasn't around back then. But every day you're running, you're practicing on an obstacle course. You know, you have certain achievements that you have to meet physically before you get cleared for active duty. And well, so far, that sounds fun. 
Right. So we kept saying camp to your, camp for three months. Uh, to your sister-in-law that we're in summer camp. She okay. didn't really find that joke too hilarious. Ethan and I used to keep saying that, but um, you're just being wiped. You're being exhausted every day. You don't know where you're standing. Now, you don't this- know what you're doing. And uh, to be honest, at that point, my Hebrew level was not the greatest. So I didn't entirely also know what was going on besides March and you're, you're marching everywhere. You're just getting into a military mindset. At this point, do they uh, like sort of choose different weapons? Like some guys become snipers and, you know, this is your expertise and this is your expertise. Is, was that going on at this point during these three months? So that's Shvua Pakalim, it's called. Before that, you actually have Shvua Sadot. And so there's after you get your gun, um, after you did your first Massah, and so the way they do the massas, if anyone's heard of a massa kumta, for example, yeah, that's you the tell last us what one. a massa is. You walk to the hotel with a tanakh or something like that. Close, but they build you up to do like a forty-kilometer through the night hike, where like you're carrying people for like a good percentage of it, and and it's you know it's it's an incredible experience. But they got to build you up to that. So every like week, you know, you're doing okay. Eleven p.m. We're gonna do you know the first one. Let's say is two kilometers. That's really short. So you're gonna just run it with carrying someone on a stretcher. I would say that actually the first one was probably the hardest, harder than the 40-kilometer one. Two kilometers? Uh, uh, yeah, because it was a sprint. It was a dead sprint. And you're just navigationally going around and, and just learning how to work as a unit. And the first time you go into the field, for the you know, which is, means no cell phone, they actually take your watch for this week, and they make you strap a gas mask to your leg. It's absolute chaos. Uh, you don't know the time. You don't know where you are. Uh, you don't know what you're doing besides for the fact that if you want to drink water, you have to capture the water and take over the position. You want to eat. Everyone combined has 15 minutes to eat in your kita, uh, which is like eight guys. But four of them have to be on guard duty surrounding your position and making sure that you're you know, safe from the you know, supposed enemy during that time. Um, and that's your introduction to the wild. The way Natsach did it, or for my draft, it's actually like a nine-day situation where you actually spend Shabbos in the middle of a field without your cell phone for pretty much the entire time. And pretty much every night when you go to sleep, about 20 minutes after you've fallen into the deepest sleep in a ditch or grave that you dug, they start shooting blinks in your face and then running you through like two more hours of exercises. You can dig a pit? They give you a shuffle. I would love to see you dig a pit. Jordy, you can dig a pit? No, I'm going to ignore that comment. Okay, so so st- they're starting to get you into both the mindset and the physical aptitude for, you know, actual action. And this goes on for a couple months, okay? That's three months. And That's then three months. at the end of it, you get your uh, swearing-in ceremony. So mine was actually pretty controversial. Okay. There was, like, a lot of protests against the religious unit. Was and it just starting out or something, or...? A couple years in, I guess it was a controversial topic politically in Israel at that time. And I think they delayed it or there was talks of canceling it because they thought there would be riots at our swearing-in ceremony. In the end, it happened because a ton of parents flew in and there was like a semi-uprising. And my mother actually flew in for that. And that was at Givara Tachmosha at Ammunition Hill. And that was a pretty meaningful experience. One of the things our unit did was every morning... You sang Atikva, and afterwards you sang Animamin every single time. And so together in front of 500 people, you got to, you know, march in formation. A lot of friends, buddies, as Jordan would say, you know, showed up. And it, it was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool moment. 
uh, swearing in. But you don't actually swear in in this unit. You you affirm. It sounds like the training beforehand was more of a general training for any soldier. And then when it came to the unit that you were in, when do you start to specialize in the kind of the art of war that you became proficient in? So after that, you go into advanced warfare. By us, you switch bases and go to a base. Originally, we were at a place called Pelas, and then you go down the road to Bikaot. And this there, is where is that located? North, south? It's in the Jordan Valley, Jordan close Valley. to okay. Beit okay. Um At that point, it's dead heat of the summer. So all training actually takes place during the night, and you sleep during the day. They get you prepared for, like, I forgot what the week was called, but you do a week of guarding the base. And that means, like, four hours on, four hours off, four hours on, four hours off. And you got to stand for those entire four hours. You can't be on your phone. And you're really, like, getting into the nitty-gritty of some of the aspects of like what you're going to be doing down the road. And you spend about four months. But for me, there was a unique challenge. Well, not unique. A lot of guys have it. But for me, there was the obstacle course that I needed to pass. Which part yeah, was yeah. Okay. Which so, aspect? Which aspect? The so, rope. Wait, I was about to say the rope the climb. climb. The, the rope oh, climb. Okay. So uh, me and the rope were not friends. I guess Israelis are born with the intuition on how to climb a rope us americans it doesn't come naturally Speak for yourself Nachum. we do it all the time at crossfit right do that after running an obstacle course with a ton of gear you know weighing what i you know was at that point i was a little skinnier but weighing and uh it, it's not so easy uh, they make you run it's a 600 meter run followed by jumping a six foot wall running through tires that was easy parallel bars that you had to cross over. And mind you, this is while wearing your vest, five uh, magazines of ammunition, your gun, your helmet, supposedly two bottles of water. I would always dump those out beforehand just to cut down on a little bit of weight. So you'd rather thirst than oh, drink. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just for the test. Um, followed by monkey bars, jumping over uh, imaginary water, and then you get to this rope. Um, it's got to be a 20-foot tall rope, and you got to get at least, you know, you got to do a couple good climbs up and besides for the timing, you have 10 minutes and 30 seconds to pass this course. If you do not climb this rope, you do not go to Kav, the front lines. And, and, and that's everything that's standing in between you. And for the life of me, I could not climb this rope. How long did it take you in the end? I think the second to last possible try I passed. And if you had not done it, you would not have been passed to go. I would have, been, I would have been a driver, a chauffeur, work in a kitchen. You like know, a, like stick shift or like be a job. I, I would have been a job neck. And if you don't climb that rope, but at some point it clicked. And so this is one of the second to last opportunities I had to pass the test. At this point in time, were you able to climb a rope just not when you were tired or you just couldn't? I, I legitimately could not climb a rope. Could you climb one now? Yes. One day it clicked. You have 10 minutes and 30 seconds to finish this course. After the rope climb, you have to like climb a bunch of logs in like the formation of a triangle. You got to crawl under a box, and then you got to run another 400 meters back. So it's like a 0.6 and a half mile run, plus a ton of obstacles in the middle, um, and you have 10 minutes and 30 seconds to pass it. So you finally did so it? So you did it. Okay. So not, not, not only did I do it, I, I think was I like did it. Was everyone clapping when you did it? No. Because like, so you were I, like the last one? I'll break it here. I cheated. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> Which part did you cheat on? So after the rope climb, there's like four more obstacles. Sure. I did not do them. How did they, did they know you didn't do it? Like, how do you cover So the army inv is investing a ton of money in you to, like, finish training. Right. It's an utter failure to, like, all the commanders, all the officers, if they can't get, you know, some fat American to be able to climb a rope in seven months. Um, <laughs> it happened to be I had a Lubavitch American um, commander who wasn't my actual commander, but he was, you know, watching 
the obstacle course and I was really on time to passing. Like I would say probably at the 10 minute mark, but after I successfully climbed the rope, I wasn't taking any chances. And so I just did a dead sprint back. He started like screaming at me in Hebrew. At that point, I was speaking to him back in English, English which is... An Eperon. Yeah, yeah, it was it was not sure. the nicest of words. Uh, I told him to look the other way and told him it would be his fault and I would blame him specifically if I did not pass. And I actually passed in around, I think, eight minutes, which is top 10% of the entire unit. So in they the, moved the you up to the course. most elite units. Like <laughs> no, not at all. Unit, but, I, like... but I passed with flying colors. Let's... Uh, yeah, right, so you passed, and then all of a sudden now you're ready for... There's also a physical test, which is push-ups and running. And that as well, I uh, had to uh, okay, skip finagle that. my skip, way. Skip, skip the next that. test. Yeah, you you passed all tests. Okay. Caught it. So the unit that you were in specialized in what? So we specialize in urban warfare, but mainly the cities of Janine and Tulkarim. Okay, and when you say urban warfare, what type of urban warfare are you training for? Arrests going into the cities at night and arresting wanted terrorists, or that's what you assume. Sometimes it's uh, car robbers. Were you that, given that like getting? maps of, of the cities that like you guys were just studying almost like daily, just so like you knew it as if like Skokie, like familiar with the area or? So there's one city across from the first base we went to. Um, at this point, we actually got consolidated of all the Hesder guys and all the Americans into one Machlaka, which is about, you know, 15 to 20 guys which is a pretty unique situation just because we were all very motivated, all there on shorter amounts of time than the three-year guys, and they wanted to put us to use immediately. So we skipped an aspect um, after advanced training before like full frontline operations uh, called Maslul, and we went just straight to the front lines. Going back to your question about like jobs that you get in the Army, that week I actually ended up hospitalized with a double ingrown toenail. So I actually uh, finished... All of my training in the army, instead of being a magist, which is what I was supposed to be, I was called a chapash. It's uh, probably from all that rope climbing. It's from not taking off my boots for like eight days straight and sleeping in the field. Um, it was a pretty disgusting situation, but I showed up to the front lines without a specialty. And to me, that was a massive bug out. You have somewhat of a training in urban warfare, and you, you're supposed to do a couple more weeks of something, but then you're sent to the front lines. How prepared are you the first time? Right, And how soon is it after that that you are given your first operation? So first they got to size us all up. You got a new officer when you get to the front lines. Not everyone knows each other. Our officer was like a five-foot Taimani um, from Beitshan who had a low tolerance for Americans. So we get there and they start asking everyone what their jobs are. And everyone states them. And then they start talking about just some extra jobs that you do during, let's say, a riot. So if Sadim, at this point I didn't have a job. And so they said, all right, who's been trained in on the pakalpritsa, the mechanism that you use to break down the door on an arrest? And I just raised my head and I said, me. And they said, who's, uh, you know, trained in on rubber bullets? I raised my hand again, me. Who's trained in on um, this grenade launcher apparatus that you shoot tear gas out of? Raise my hand again, me. So at that point, they're like, oh, well. How'd this happen? I was like, oh, I was in fat camp. And during that time, they trained us on a bunch of extra things. Oh, and they actually did? No. Okay. <laughs> I just lied through my teeth. But I needed to get a job. Because if you don't have a job or a so specialty... So what did they end up giving you? So they ended up giving me Pakalpritsa, which is... Um, the door breaker? The door breaker. It's a uh, mechanized pump that weighs probably around 200 pounds that you wear on your back on top of everything else that I think works 3 to 5% of the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's pretty 
Ass right. a piece of garbage. Okay. Just use your shoulder. So, so now, and, and then what? So the first uh, couple days you're there, you're doing just close quarter combat training, like on base um, at night, just, you know, going over hand signals, how you operate, how we all can get on the same page. There's like fake houses and like you're- No, just, no. just literally the barracks, like outside. Okay. You're just doing it, you know, drill after drill after drill. And the, the base we were in were, was in a yeshuv called Movodotan. Across the road was an Arab village called Yabid, which we basically used for training. We'd go into an Arab village and just, you know, not mess around, but like run through exercises because it wasn't so dangerous. Um, so like when you would drive through, they're like, hey, what's up? Or No, they'd stone you, throw okay. a mouth of cocktails and all the like. But it, it was, you know. You had to get a taste of the action. You had to get it, you know, exactly. You have a warm up. And so you do a couple of those, and um, after that, you're pretty much operational. And now I, I assume, and I, I bring this up because of a comment that our friend Jeremy Kroll once made. In terms of, it sounds like, you know, some of the first training that you did when you got here was, uh, you know, communication. When you're in urban warfare, and in any warfare for that matter, communication is key understanding the signals that your counterparts are giving, right? I think Jeremy Kroll actually mentioned one day when he was talking about the Hebrew aspect and not doing ulpan, he said he'd be afraid to be in the army because he said an officer would tell him to go left, not understanding he'd go right and step on a mine. I mean, so without the Hebrew, in the heat of battle, if your commander is speaking Hebrew, how difficult does that get? So we had a couple of guys that their Hebrew was subpar, to say the least. I honestly felt bad for them, but they spent the majority of their time guarding the base and doing kitchen duty. Got it. So unless the officer in charge is comfortable with you handling the operational activity and aspect of your mission, you're not going to see anything. So you were like all excited like for your first operation oh, or mission juiced. or no? You're, you're pumped. I'm saying you're, you're, you're ready to rumble. It. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, Man, I'm it, just picturing like I'm just thinking back like like Ghostbusters, you know, like, like you know, they get this office and they're just sitting around just waiting for like the first call. So like no, you're, 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 you're waiting you're, for your, your, your first call. Like, okay, we got a mission. We got to go into So Geneva. you're jonesing for it. You're just, you cannot wait. So, so what the, happened when you so got the your first, first call? Just to clarify, just because we, you know, we're on Kav Janine doesn't mean you're going into Janine only every right. night so, or Janine in general, because that's a massive <laughs> operation for all the former soldiers that, were, that are listening, um, we did not go up to a normal plugat. We went up to a plugas called Plugat Omek, which meant we literally only focused on arrest missions. We didn't do CR, We didn't do patrols. We didn't do all the other, mon you know, not mundane, but less exciting things. We were just thrown into the most exciting thing from day one, which is awesome. And so during our Kav and Janine, during our tour, we had to do at least 25 what does that mean? What does that mean? A tour? They, you drove around. So tour just meaning to meaning the... no meaning tour meaning our our, our time there. Okay, You're not right. at a you know just at the same base forever. Uh, they you know switch you around. We had about three regions Gizrot that we we managed as a as a unit of Netzach Yuda, and we were you know Kav Janine, which was Muvodotan. All right. That's okay. Cool. First operation. What's going on? Let me hear. So they do like a warm up in Yabid. Uh, the warm ups. Let me, I want and then the hear... next night you do an operation. Okay, in okay hold on, hold on. You're obviously you're not the commander of the unit. No. How much intelligence are you given before the operation in terms of the target information about the target? Or are you just what's important for you is to follow orders and this is what the target looks like. So that's also not clear of what the target looks like because they don't want to prep you and They're preface like you. Middle Eastern-looking man around 5'10", so, dark So you're hair. not handling that in its entirety. Generally, the Shabak is going to be with you. 
and you're, you know, ensuring that you get them. Um, but the officer definitely knows you're given the location again, depending on the severity or uh, of the mission. So it's really depends police on who's are involved. doing the like the arrest, and you guys are assisting. So Shabak is not the police. That's okay. the Mishtara. Shabak is the intelligence side. So um, the intelligence is doing the arrest, and you guys are the backup. Is that for some for the of the muscle? more okay. intense missions? Um, but no, your officer, your commanding officer, your mempay, like the head of the hundred and thirty sure. soldiers, he knows exactly what's going on. Everyone who needs to be read into the information uh, gets read into that. You know the path you're taking, um, et cetera. But they don't bog you down with the information that you do not need to carry out the mission. Okay. Um, unnecessarily. Okay. So now, how many? Let's say, let's take you to your the first operation. How many guys are on it, and when does it take place? What does that look like? So you're always going in at around two, three a.m. Ninety-five percent of the time, you do not drive to the house that you're about to arrest the person from or interrogate that person from, you got a halicha. And so that was the most important information before every single mission was how far was this halicha? Halicha meaning, meaning travel, walk. You walk, right? So you're dumped in the middle of nowhere. Can we just stop using Hebrew terms? Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I know no, you're talking about Help us out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we, we don't care. Just tell us. We had to walk to the house. We had to walk to the house, <laughs> yes, but okay. it wasn't like so, down the block. E right. So either we're walking two blocks okay, or so we're you walking get, you four kilometers. Yeah, you're generally right. walking, you know, let's say two to seven kilometers. Nahum, take us to your first operation. How many guys are a part of this mission? What is the anticipation like waiting for it? When does it take place? So the mission takes place in the middle of the night, probably close to between 2 to 3 a.m. Uh, you're probably leaving around 1 a.m. To, to mount up and start getting over to the you know area that you're going to operate in. In the transport vehicle, sometimes you're one or two, so I would say Do you remember your first 30. mission? I do not. Oh, okay. I do not remember exactly my first gotcha. mission. I'm assuming it was Yabit, though. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And you're going in. You got so to- you said uh, one, only one or two guys? One or two vehicles, which, okay. contain, you know, which carries about eight to ten guys in, in these vehicle. vehicles. Called the Zev, and uh, you're going in, getting to the house, and you know detaining the individual that you're set out to detain. Okay, hold on. I appreciate that, but it sounds simplistic. I mean, me and y'all, y'all right now yeah. would. I mean, if you Here, and I were going I, on a I, mission, I have you got to give me some of the um, uh, the emotion and the anticipation. You're walking, y'all. Let's say we were given a mission right now to make an arrest in Austin. Okay, what uh, what would we be doing? Okay, How so, nervous so, would yes. we be right so now? So definitely I simplifying. <laughs> Smoking four cigarettes. So I definitely simplified it. Everyone has their ski road, has their areas that they're closing down. I, I don't know the English term for it. Um, but you close the three, the six, the 12, and the nine on the house, right? That's a, of a clock. So, so you you're going the house. north, south, east, east sure. west. Two people at each corner. We call each of those. surrounding the house. Yes. And then you have probably a assault team that is four and the, people. And the, and the village is sleeping? Yes. Everyone's sleeping. That's Everyone's why. Asleep. There's no people out. Because no if, if there's someone about. up, then... They're gonna alert the others. Yeah, is that usually what happens? Yeah. So you're 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 going in, and I was the guy generally as one of the bigger people um, that was going to either breach entry or just be the muscle going into the house. So you're the first in. Knowing this going in, or before you even depart, are you intense? Are you, are you scared? Excited? Are you scared? Oh no, there's no fear at this stage. You've never, you know, no one's kind of. So you're playing capture the flag. You're playing cops and robbers. Okay, just, hold on. You know. and, and, but, but how is that? Meaning, was that fear, like, knocked out of you during your months of training? 
you feel stronger than anything. You know, you're the ones with the guns. But they might the, also have guns. I mean, are these people considered armed and dangerous? So they don't tell you beforehand right. because like it's one thing if I'm going after a guy who's like, you know, we're capturing him for tax evasion, and it's another thing for a guy who's wanted for the murder of three people. You know what I'm saying? So it's like right. So both of those do fall into your lap. Okay. Um, you got to take the same operational seriousness into sure. these missions. Mind you, though, some of the times we did, you know, you're not supposed to or allowed to back then. This was 10 years ago. Bring your phones with you. Multiple times Google Maps was brought up so we could actually find the house we were supposed to find. Because you can't knock um, on doors. You can't knock on doors and start asking people directions. You just walked in. But we were good. We were really good at what we were doing, and we were doing this pretty often. That allowed you to be just operating pretty seamlessly. And the people were always sleeping when you broke down that door? Ah, uh, usually they woke up while you were while I was attempting to use this. And then what are they doing? Are they fighting back, or they're just like hands okay, up? Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you get to that, you break down the door, okay? What would typically I, happen? I'm telling you, we only the broke door down falls. the door a couple times. Why? It's not uh, breaking. So that, what you you pick the lock? Essentially, or you you're opened. S- you're jamming this this. It's like a V, a triangle in between the. Okay, you pry open the door. So that's pretty silent. Um, generally, they're kind of standing on the other side of the door, just looking at you, waiting for you to get it done. Or once you see that, they see how much damage you're doing to their door. Uh, they generally sometimes just open it for you, and they realize the gig's up. No matter what mission you're going on, you have to have something covering your face, so either face paint or like a baklava. So you are looking semi-intimidating. The gig was up once they knew we were here. We weren't going anywhere without and it was them. was never like no one grabbed for weapons. Or I'm saying your experience. I'm sure it's happened, you know, where people, you know. Right, and of course it's happened. You do get riots outside. That's definitely a concern. But anyone like specifically grabbing a weapon and trying to attack you back, uh, no, that never happened because it wouldn't end well for them. Right, right. But immediately. They, they were ta- maybe yeah. they were taken out, but the second that the village wakes up or the city... What what happens then, and how often would that happen? So the goal always was was to get out before first sunlight or first call to prayer. The second you heard the muazin go off in the village, you knew it was like, oh no, you know, stuff's about to you know kick off. Obviously, depending on the village, you have different villages that are you know known to the army of like, oh, this is a Hamas village or this is a Fatah village, and 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 so. The Hamas villages were definitely a concern of everyone waking up. There was probably never a, a situation where you exited the village in absolute peace. Yeah, you you, you move pretty quickly once Did you, you ever got the leave guy before the mission was over because they were waking up. It's like now or never, and it's not now, so we got to get out. No, I don't recall. I'm sure that happens, uh, right? Um, I mean, yeah, I, it has to happen. I yeah. assume the number one issue, I guess, concern is your safety. Or- yeah, soldiers. I mean, you go in with a, you know, there's an initial force and then you have other people coming and surrounding the area sometimes that allow external, you know, additional security. Um, but certain times you're going on something called a Seor Shabak, where the Shin Bet just wants to interview or ask a lot of questions to a lot of people. The first stop is, you know, the first house you go to and then you're driving another, you know, 30 minutes and then you're going to another house. And by the end of the night, you could have gone to like six houses and you just have like a horde of teenagers just chasing you down with like Molotov cocktails and rocks just chucking them at you. Were there ever actual gun battles from around the town that had woken up? Only once. Only once. And you had to fight your way out of it? That was a totally different mission. Did they ask, um, where's that rubber bullet specialist? And that's, actually, that's actually hilarious that you say that. It was March, I think, 22nd. 
of 2014, we were uh, going after someone. The first night we get to the front lines, uh, besides for these arrest missions, every Friday night you do something um, called an ambush. And ours was to drive about 20 minutes away, sit in a valley, and wait for this individual. There was someone who was on the Israeli intelligence list that was going to be carrying out an attack in Israel imminently. And we had to wait in a valley that they thought he was definitely going to be walking through. And we had to wait there. So fast forward from September to March, they find the guy. They're going to get him on a Thursday night. In the end, uh, the mission got busted on the Thursday night and they moved it to a Friday night. We and about, I would say, 150 to 200 other soldiers got called as being the Koachilut, so that's the exterior force. And this was in the refugee camp of Janine. And as we were driving in, I was our officer's semed, so I had a radio on that mission. And you just hear the gunfire, and I, I had the rubber bullets on that mission. And after a minute, I was like, uh, no, this is not rubber bullet time. This is, you know, live fire time. So, yeah, only once did I. You had made the decision to switch to live. Yeah. I mean, do you want to go further into what went down? Sure. This was like the mission of the century. It was in the refugee camp of Janine going after the guy. Yamam was going after the guy. And that's the one of the most elite SWAT teams. You could Google it. But Yamam is highly, highly regarded as being absolutely insane and incredible at their job. Uh, they go in with the Mistavrim, which is the undercover unit. They're going in to get this guy dead or alive, uh, which is not generally how a mission is stated. But yeah, as we were driving in, we hear them send them the dog. They sent an attack dog to get him. The Kelev. Yeah. He didn't no. say the Hebrew term. There you go. <laughs> you know, you hear on the radio that the dog was shot like 200 times. So we get in there and you just see tracer fire. And this is on a Friday night, mind you. You don't do any missions unless absolutely critical. On a Friday night, Shabbos is very relaxed in the army, even if you're on base. Uh, this was actually the first and only time. Uh, that we ever did an arrest on a Friday night. And mind you, we were not doing the arrest. We were just doing the exterior support team for that. But yeah, I remember being the officer's semed or partner. And so when we got on scene to our area that we were cordon uh, cordoning off, you just see like tracer fire um, going in the air. And that's pretty rare from like a 50 caliber machine gun. And it's like, whoa, that's a lot of you know firepower from us. And it's like, um, that's not us. That's them. So it kind of dawns upon you pretty quickly how big of a deal this was. We probably got there at 1 a.m. We left the area the next morning at 6 a.m., like Shabbos morning. And it's a firefight the entire evening? The or? entire night. I mean, it got transparently pretty boring. After do you about, see where you're shooting? Do you see, or you're just going in that direction? And so we actually had a no fire order on the operational zone due to the undercover units. Right. Um, we have no idea who friend or foe is. Basically, if they shoot at you, you kill them. If they don't, do not shoot at them. Right. But at the end of the mission, my officer and I had actually gone back into the vehicle to just relax and sent a couple other guys to to hold the area. You know, we hear on the radio that they found the guy, and then you just hear a couple sniper shots, and then our officer's name gets called on the radio, and they decided to send our team in to recover this guy's body. They wanted his body, and it was just a very surreal moment because you kind of know exactly what has just taken place for the past six hours. And it's already daylight at this point? Yeah, it's okay. daylight. 
and the whole village is out and it's absolutely insane and we drive down there and we take out a stretcher to like carry this dead body out and i just vividly remember we're like kind of running through the corners and like someone cracks a joke and again this is a unit that's done probably 30 to 40 arrest missions at this point and like the officer turns around and like it was just like this is real like no not time and place like this is not you know the time for for a delay we kind of got to the body got fired upon left the body ran back to our vehicle and got lost for the next like 20 minutes in the middle of like the refugee camp of Janine and so then I, just didn't you guys realize you're gonna get fired upon by trying to retrieve I mean obviously it wasn't your call above my pig right here gotcha. um, it was just exciting to like kind of go into that zone but then like got real pretty quick like afterwards were you like that was crazy like I'm just happy to be yeah, alive. What's, what's the come down after that? Right. So I did have this guy's uh, and do they, some they, remains of his body on like the bottom of my shoes, just from like being the first guy in the officers. You know, we're we're leading the way in Israel. Like the officer is the first one in, not the last. So they lead from the front, and he's about as I said earlier, five feet tall. I'm six feet tall, um, weigh at least seventy five pounds more than him. So I'm like mainly the target there for those who are shooting at us. But uh, yeah, it's, it was quite surreal, you know, afterwards when we sit down and kind of get out of Janine because that was right, an adventure in and of sure. itself. It was just utter shock. You're like, what just happened there? And this was like right at the end of your service? or This, this, is, was, March, this is March. Right? This right. was March, okay. a year in. Yeah, there's no concept give you guys of trauma. Off no, of like, absolutely not. There was politics involved because the officer that was in charge of the base for that Shabbos got bumped off the mission for his commanding officer who drove to be there for the mission. And so when we got back to base, the officer that led us on that mission went back home and the officer that was in charge of the base wanted to go find his own action for the next 12 hours. Gotcha. But yeah, no, it dawned upon me that mostly Shabbos when I started getting phone calls from like family and friends being like, dude, you good? I'm like, yeah, like what? What are you? What are you talking about? You probably like, didn't realize the scope of it until you're right. Later. Of course, and then you like you realize like oh, like Bibi Netanyahu is giving right. a press conference on this event on a normal um, mission. You go ahead and you know a successful arrest, and you're driving back. I mean, I, I remember sort of you know back in the days of uh, you know in camp, you had like a successful raid, and you're like on a high. You know, you're like driving down, you're singing like the A Team theme or something like that. Like when you guys you know leave town, you got the guy in your car arrested. At 3 a.m., you're driving out, like, is, is there, like, celebration? You're like, oh, I got to go, go to sleep soon. Like, what, what's going on at that point in time? So your adrenaline definitely drops. Right. You're dripping in sweat. Uh, the goal is generally to find a gas station to get, you know. Cigarettes and the Cigarettes, coke, coke yeah. and, and just chill for a few minutes. Guys out there, you know, I had my pre-mission routine, which was always a can of coke and uh this snack like this chocolate and nuts snack that they sold in the vending machine but you wanted to get back to base as well underratedly the shower situation at the bases i was at was awesome it was like a shipping container with just nozzles on its head on the heads you know nozzles in there and you just turn every single one to the hottest setting possible and create like a massive schwitz uh-huh. so it was a good time let me ask how often were these raids taking place like how many nights off would you have between was it once a week? You know, it really depended. It went in you know spurts. So the first base we were in, that was a majority. You know, two to three maybe nights a week. Second base um, I did, which was by uh, Avne Chefetz and Enav, which was predominantly the Tulkarim area. That was much rarer. At that point, I had already um, injured myself. I 
fractured my S1, S2 of my spine and slipped my L4, L5 of my discs of my back. So I wasn't really looking, you know, for more stupid missions. You know, if it was exciting and I, you know, wanted to do it, I'd find a way to get on it. But most of them I was not that interested in going on. At some point, you end your service and you go back to normal civilian life. I actually think as you're talking, I got married in the summer of 2014. Yol, you were present at the wedding. And Nahum, you were also, and you had been, I guess, dating my sister from, I don't know when that started, but you had come to the wedding. So, and that that apparently was not long after you had ended your service. When did you end your service? End of May. Okay, so I got married August, so end of May to August. So now you're coming back not only you know, coming down to civilian life in Israel, but then coming to America. I mean, what's that transition like? I mean, do you look at your peers that Jordan. are Chicagoans, Americans, and look at them like they're just complete jokes and you have no idea what I've been through? Jordan, have you never seen uh, First Blood Rambo? Well, exactly. That, that's yes. Malcolm walking through. <laughs> yeah. I, I, looking, what, I, were you looking and were you, were you looking for that adrenaline spurt? All of us that were discharged at the time kind of got chopped down big time in, in that regard because... About two to three weeks after I was discharged from the army, the three boys in the gush were actually kidnapped, which led to the 2014 Gaza War, which we all did not participate in due to being discharged. And that was really difficult. And for you were a lot in America at the time? I was no. in America at the okay. time. And so, like, that aspect of, like, I wouldn't say you felt like a fraud, but, like, you weren't like, oh, whoa, like, look at me here uh, anymore because, you know, there was just a war and we were not in it. Uh, we were not there. But yeah, I mean, I went to YU right after your wedding. I actually missed the first two days of college for your wedding. That was that was fun, Thank you know, you. showing up late to the first two days of school, not knowing where to go and what to do. Uh, but YU provided a lot of support at that time for soldiers who had just left the army. And so there was a group of us, I would say probably eight to ten of us. And so there was like group therapy and there was a lot of resources that a lot of guys utilized. But I would say it probably took a solid year before you could walk up a set of stairs in the heights without like, you know, Sing, closing your corners and like, you know, going on the exterior and how you were trained to, you know, go up steps. Fast forward, I guess, you know, nine years later, October 7th, obviously we all feel uh, the devastation of what took place in Israel. For you, though, as a former soldier, was that experience different in the sense that all of a sudden, right after, you know, everything broke out and the tragedies that happened, you know, there were a lot of Americans that felt the need and flew back and reservists that came back. Obviously, your situation is a little different. You just had uh, your third child a short time ago and the loss of your mother very recently. Um, so your situation is obviously a little different. But, but did, you injury, feel, right? did, did you feel maybe a pressure or a desire to go back and help? Obviously, that might not have worked out as you know differently, but did you feel that at all? Do you Ab- feel left out? Absolutely. As we did things in our time in the Army, you know, you kind of feel that you could assist during these times. It goes back to the kind of the reason that I joined the Army. It was like, okay, like, I understand. I have a wife and kids here and a family and a job and all of that, but so does everyone in Israel. Um, and I don't view that as like a real excuse. Obviously, you got to weigh your life situation. I, I did not get a Tzav Shimon. I did not get a call up. And if you ignore one of those, it is a pretty serious situation. And that was because I served in Machal, because it would be just an absolute logistical nightmare for the army to 
you know, call up reservists who are American and just have no place to stay and stuff like that. Generally more of the younger guys. But, you know, there are a lot of units that were just looking for people and, you know, spent the time. I'm still in a WhatsApp group right now of just open jobs in the military. Oh, they still have a lot. Oh, there's, it's every day there's posts for different positions and different units. A lot of the guys I served like with. Active yeah. duty or yeah. driving? From from know. Gaza to the north to the West Bank to the south. Uh, they're looking for a lot of people, obviously. Are how, you physically fit to serve or you said because I know you had those... You know, I, need, I, I need 30 days. I need 30 days. Could you still carry like 70 pounds or? Yeah, it's all mind. Oh, okay. It's all mental. The guys that you're in a unit with, right? There's a special bond, I assume, that there is with them. Where are those guys? So I've kept in touch with um, not as many as I probably should. But the guys I was closest with, I've been WhatsApping and, you know, video calling with them as of recent the Americans that are not currently serving, you know, that either have moved back to America or are living in Israel, checked in with them, seeing how they're doing. I actually, I think one or two days after, so either October 8th or 9th, I got a call from one of the guys I served with just calling to check in. You know, he had a lot of emotions to process. Uh, we both did, but he was just saying, hey, how you doing? He's like, this isn't easy for me, and I can assume it's not easy for you. Just checking in. It was very nice. I hadn't spoken to this guy in probably three, three to four years. But yeah, that bond is still there. If uh, you know any of us needed each other for any situation, they would be there. My mother, you know, as you had stated, has recently had recently passed in August. A couple of the guys from the unit showed up at the funeral. My former uh, commander showed up uh, at the funeral. It was very nice. It was very touching and moving. And those are always going to be guys that you know when you see them, they'll be like long lost brothers. Yeah, my WhatsApping in Hebrew is not as proficient as it probably should be. Was your unit together in the Janine area, or are they have they are they split up in different places? So for Netzach, the reserve unit is actually it's been explained to me sort of like Chavra Kadisha for the soldiers. So what their job is, some of them are in the West Bank, some of them are by Gaza, but their job is really to go in and retrieve, unfortunately, the bodies of soldiers that they can, and you know provide them the utmost of, uh, you know, Kedusha for their, you know, funerals and getting as much as they can out of there. But you also have guys that kind of left that unit and just decided to finagle their way in the reserves to like a more elite, uh, into, into more elite unit. So not to say it's not combat, you know, you are sure. going into Gaza yeah. or wherever it is, wherever that, you know, you're assigned to, to retrieve such a situation. And it's not like that's, that area is safe by any regard, but you're not on like an active, you know, more mission right. oriented in that. Okay, well, Nachum, this has been a journey. We appreciate you coming on, but we also want to specifically appreciate you for your service to the state of Israel, to the Jewish people. You know, in trying times as such as now, it's, uh, I think, even more apparent. And sharing your experience tonight. Yol? I'm Israel Chai. I'm Israel Chai.